It's getting more expensive to finance the federal government, but that's not necessarily a sign of trouble for the U.S. economy. Or is it? From SDPB Radio, it's Tuesday, September 5th. This is In the Moment. Coming up this hour, Joe Santos joins us for a look at long-term interest rates, so-called yields to maturity. Then the teacher shortage in South Dakota reflects major challenges to the profession nationwide. We'll explore ways to address recruitment for the next generation of educators, or even South Dakotans stepping into second careers. That's coming a bit later in the hour. Plus, On Call with the Prairie Doc is back in the studio. Dr. Andrew Ellsworth has your preview. We're broadcasting live today from SDPB's Kirby Family Studio in Sioux Falls. I'm Lori Walsh. You're in the moment. News is first. A Central High School student in Aberdeen is giving back by empowering others to give back. Brianna Woolman is South Dakota's first ever Bezos Scholar and launching a program to help other students donate their time and energy to their community. That program launched last week, and Brianna joins me now on the phone with more. Brianna Woolman, welcome. Thanks for being here. Well, thank you for having me. And congratulations on being uh, South Dakota's first ever Bezos Scholar. Let's start with how you decided, um, hugely competitive uh, program to gain entrance in, and you said, I'm going to give it a shot. Take me back to how you first applied. Yeah, so last Christmas break, when I probably should have been enjoying time with my family, I was was looking for different scholarships. That's just how I am, but I came across the program when I was looking for grant money to launch a different project I was working on. Um, after applying, it was a bunch of short essay questions, and then I was a semifinalist notified last March, did an interview, made it down to the finalist program. Um, it was a very long application process. <laughs> I like found the program about like two weeks before the deadline was, and all of Christmas break last year, it was writing essays and revising essays and working out to find an educator scholar, which I now have. And it was a very, it was a very long process, but it was definitely worth the effort. So I want to talk a little bit about your your project, but first the. The Bezos Scholar Program is a leadership development program. How is it sort of helping you in your um, path to college, for example? Yeah, so neither of my parents went to high school, They're, never mind college. So with the program, I get college advising, which is something I value so much, whether it be assisting me finding various scholarships to help me pay for the cost of college or lining me up with different universities that have the interest in like the field I want to go in into the future. It's the assistance I've gotten there with college advising has been priceless, but also it's showing me into different programs that can get me to where I want to go in the future. I know I want to go into government and it's you open one door. It essentially provides you with a whole new world of opportunities to kind of test those waters. Wow. I'm looking forward to seeing what you do uh, with your career. So keep keep us in mind as you move forward. But first, tell us a little bit about how you wanted to help people in the community and really give more of your fellow students the opportunity to do that. Tell us a little bit about your project. Yeah. So um, 
as a student at Central High School, through some of the different groups that I've in, I've had the opportunity to give back with community service, primarily with running my own projects. And I like that changed me as a person, seeing the impact that a little bit of your time and efforts can have on others. I wanted to give other students at Central who don't necessarily have that affiliation with a club or activity the opportunity to get out into the community the same way that I have. So what the project does is at Central, we do super studies instead of homerooms. It gives every single super study the opportunity to go out into the community for up to two to three hours during the school day to give back. And that's what we've been working on. Um, so far, it has been very exciting trying to line up the different opportunities for super studies to tackle on and seeing some of the students try to come up with their own ideas, too. You have, like, no idea how much it excites me when students are given the creative outlet to do something like this and they take it and run with it. Yeah, tell me a little bit about those ripple effects, because at some point it becomes really hard to manage if somebody or uh, measure really hard to measure. If somebody says, what was the impact of your project? You have to sit back and go like, I don't I don't know all the ways this impacted the community. What do you hope will happen in the community of Aberdeen and beyond? Well, yeah, um, I though the word you use like the, with the ripple effect, that's yeah. exactly what I'm hoping because it was students that came before me that gave me the opportunity with a creative outlet through the different clubs I'm in. They like opened the door of service to me and the importance of giving back. And even if a student doesn't necessarily love the work that they're doing, if they can learn something through it through service learning, then the the impact has been made. Yeah. That's the point to see that any person has the ability to go out and make a change. Um, Brianna, you got to go to the Aspen Ideas Festival as part of this uh, Bezos Scholar program. Tell me one thing that you brought back from that festival that you're still thinking about might be relevant to you personally in the future. Um, one thing that I definitely thought about a lot during the week in Colorado was how as people, like when we continue to grow as a population and a society, we are losing a lot of the connections that we have with others. Primarily, that stems from the fact that as people, we don't share our stories enough. So creating opportunities for connection and community, it's it's changed the way that I view the world a lot and trying to find like similar outlets where I can find community, but also ensuring that the people around me also know that there's people that care about them and there's always something good to look forward to. In a word, it's community. Yeah. Well, Brianna Woolman, thanks for being part of our community. She's South Dakota's first ever Bezos Scholar, Central High School in Aberdeen. Thank you so much for being here with us, Brianna. We really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. You are listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. On Call with the Prairie Doc is returning for its 22nd season. I'll say it again, 22 seasons of On Call. That means you'll be able to tune in every Thursday to hear from the experienced team of local doctors that you know and trust. And you can hear from one of our On Call with the Prairie Doc team members right now, Dr. Andrew Ellsworth 
is an on-call physician and family medicine practitioner in Brookings. He's the host of the season premiere this Thursday. Other members of the team will join him, including Dr. Jill Cruz, Dr. Deb Johnston, and Dr. Kelly evans Hollinger. That episode, it's an Ask Anything. And ahead of that, Dr. Ellsworth penned an essay on the past and future of medicine. And you can often find those in your local newspaper. You can also find them online. We'll post it on our website. But let's get right to it. Dr. Andrew Ellsworth is with us on the phone. Hey, welcome back. Thank you. Nice to be back and visiting with you again, Lori. 22 seasons. Help people understand what exactly On Call with the Prairie Docs mission is. Our mission is to is to give honest, uh, you know, down to earth medical advice uh, to the people of our area and and in the region um, that you know, we're not tied to any any system or insurance company or or pharmaceutical company or or anything. It's just the doctors giving advice and people ask whatever they want to know about. And we're not pushing any any pills or anything else like that. And uh, um, they, you know, based on science, built on trust, and um, and and uh, we, we do it as volunteers, and and yeah. and we do it because we want to help people. And and it has been fun through the years hearing about uh, uh, the ways we have made an impact and 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 been able to reach people in the in the far reaches and that maybe don't have access to certain specialties or certain doctors and. And so a chance to let them know about some of their options and, and things about their health. Right, because we're on public radio right now. It's on public television. People might not even have the Internet, but they can get on call with the Prairie Doc. Tell me a little bit about how you plan some of the topics. You you know, you gather together or you're brainstorming or you're thinking in your personal practice, I've, I've seen this and I, we need to bring this story to the show. How, how does that work? Exactly. Yeah, we last uh, spring, as the last season was wrapping up, we we met. I don't know if it was in May or June, and and kind of brainstormed our topics and kind of started uh, hashing them out and divvying them up. And and then we've got um, our executive director that kind of mapped it all out and got things on the schedule for us. And then if something comes up, we'll we'll trade our shows. But. Uh, um, and, 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 and yeah, there's, you know, things are changing in medicine all the time. So there's some updates and some topics and we always want to make sure we, we cover various body systems and always have a show about the eyes. Cause there's always a lot of information about the eyes yeah. for people to know about and the heart and the lungs and everything in between. Um, and so, uh, in other topics that are of interest, one show that I'll be doing next month is about uh, weight loss and, uh, the, you know, there's a lot of. Op- new options for weight loss too. So I think that'll be a show I'm excited about. Um, it's it, there's it, like I said, there's always new things and things changing, and it's good to revisit the basics. And and of course, uh, one of the biggest ones that our founder, Dr. Rick Holm, would always push is a healthy diet and exercise. Right. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes, he did. Every <laughs> single time he was on, he'd tell me to go for a walk. Go for that walk. Go for that walk every yeah. day. Uh, take yeah. six blocks, Lori. Take four blocks if you can. Uh, never let right. up. But, you know, you've said a couple times here, you know, that medicine has changed. And, and, your, and your Prairie Doc perspectives uh, for this week, you go all the way back to the physician that traveled with the Corps of Discovery and, and Lewis and Clark, and they were doing some bloodletting and purging. Well, it makes well, me feel glad that I live in 2023. <laughs> 
they didn't have one travel with them, but they oh, took sure. advice from from one that yeah they were you know just over two hundred years ago there was still bloodletting going on and he gave them uh, they they brought with them six hundred pills that would uh, was mostly just uh, um, a purging pill <laughs> yeah. so they could have a good bowel movement but it was supposed to cure about anything and it even can turn contain mercury um, and and. Uh, other purgatives. Uh, so, you know, we've come a long ways in medicine in in somewhat of a relatively short amount of time compared to the history of man. But my my other point was that we've still got a lot of things we're learning about and, and, and upon new scientific discoveries are changing the way we do things still today. Yeah. And so it's exciting for us to kind of learn about that ourselves. Uh, during the show with uh, with some of our specialists that we have on and to, to help educate the public. When I was in the military, it was Motrin. Whatever you was wrong with you, <laughs> you would go to see the Corban, they would say, here's some Motrin. And you're like, hey, doc, you know, I'm right, I, I'm right. bleeding. I, you know, my leg is amputated. Here, would you like some Motrin? That was the joke that that's the only thing that they would give you. <laughs> So Take yes. an aspirin and a cookie and call me in the morning. <laughs> yeah, right? there are no cookies in the Marines. Uh, no, just here's your Motrin and get back to work. <laughs> so it feels awfully good to have uh, to have on call with the Prairie Doc. I should uh, let people know two things before we go. So SDPB TV on the Prairie Doc Facebook page. You can watch it live there too. First episode is this Thursday. That's September 7th, 7 p.m. Central, 6 Mountain. And Andrew, since it is an Ask Anything help people understand the mechanism for sending in questions? Yeah, we, they can um, send an email to ask at prairiedoc.org. Um, they could go to our Facebook page during the show and live type in a question. They can call our phone number during the show and, and call in a question live then, too. Um, so there's a lot of ways people can send in questions. And you don't need to wait till the show starts to send in a question. It's great if you even email it ahead of time or send it on Facebook ahead of time or however you want to get connected with us. All right. Dr. Andrew Ellsworth, thank you so much. Look forward to a new season. Thank you, Lori. Take care. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm your host, Lori Walsh. Well, it is getting more expensive to finance the government. How does that shape or intersect with things like how expensive your next mortgage might be? Plus, are we nudging closer to an economy that is not too hot or not too cold? We are bringing you Monday Macro on a Tuesday today. Joe Santos is the director of the Ness School of Management and Economics at South Dakota State University, where he also leads the Dyke House program in money, banking, and regulation. Today, we're going to discuss yield to maturity, and Joe is with me from SDPB's Janine Basinger Studio at South Dakota State University. Joe, welcome back. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Lori. All right. Yield to maturity. And basically, we are talking about long-term interest rates. Help kick us off here. Yeah. So long-term interest rates are getting a lot of attention these days, and that's because they are rising. Um, and there's something to the attention. So just some quick examples. Um, a conventional 30-year fixed-rate mortgage uh, average national numbers about uh, 7.1%, so north of 7. You'd have to go back over 20 years to find a mortgage rate for that particular mortgage uh, that high. Uh, 
And then uh, the U.S. government also seems to be uh, paying more to borrow. So, you know, a 10-year United States Treasury bond now has a yield to maturity, as you said, an interest rate uh, north of 4%. And to find a number like the number you see today, you'd have to go back to just before the Great Recession. So depending on what your historical perspective is, uh, if it's 20 years or fewer, um, this is, you know, these are unprecedented times in terms of uh, long-term interest rates. And as you said, what that implies for mortgage payments and so forth for, uh, you know, wannabe homeowners. So let's talk about the yield and um, expectation theory. Part of this is what we expect is going to happen. Explain that to me, please. Yeah. So if you say, you know, let's let's say 7% is the mortgage rate, um, we can decompose that using a little bit of theory. And that theory is, as you said, an expectations theory. That's that's sort of the prevailing way to think about this. And that is to say that pretty simply that that 7%, say a 30-year rate, is really an average of what investors, that's everybody in that market for mortgages, thinks one-year interest rates will be for the next 30 years. So it's really about what you expect the path of interest rates to be. So put it simply, according to the expectations theory, the simplest way to explain why it's 7% now and it's no longer you know, 4% is that the market expects a higher interest rate environment to prevail over the next several decades. And so that's, that's one of the ways we can think about 7%. There are other parts too. Um, 30 years is a long time. Most folks get this pain in their stomach when they think they're not going to see their money for 30 years, and so they <laughs> ask for more, and that's a, a term premium. So you add that on top of that average we just talked about. And then, of course, there's that real pain in the stomach where you think, maybe I will never see my money again. That's a default premium, and you add that as well. Um, and then you get to a number like seven. So we think of it as driven by our expectations of what rates are going to be doing over the next 30 years while someone else has our money, let's say. Um, the fact that I don't like to lend anybody my money for 30 years, and then the fact that I may never see my money again. And when I think about all the rewards I need for all of those, those features of the loan, you know, I get 7%. So um, we'll probably get a bit in, into the weeds on this, but I'll just say now I don't think it's really the default premium. In other words, it's not like in the last 24 months investors suddenly became more concerned that they'd never see their money again. It's probably not even the term premium, the fact that investors never like to lend money for 30 years. Right. Um, those are real features of the financial markets, but they're pretty much what we say is time invariant. We don't think that's driving it. It's mostly driven by the expectation, as you rightly prompted this discussion, of future interest rates. Okay, so this is a little bit of a, of a rabbit trail to hop down for a minute. But if you are looking at buying a house and the mortgage rates are high, you get a lot of advice like, well, you'll refinance when the mortgage rates drop. But be cautious about that is what I'm hearing you say, because that number is not some arbitrary number that people just threw out there. The expectation is that, uh, you know, I bought my house on like a 2% interest rate or something really low. Um 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. <laughs> now, if I was buying mm -hmm. a new house, I really ought to be thinking that that, that higher interest rate is going to stick around. I got to take that seriously as a, as a home buyer, right? Absolutely. That is really well-reasoned. Um, no, I'm not surprised. Um, that is, as I like to say, these investors, all of us in that market, we may not be clairvoyant, but we are rational. And so it's not to say that we'll, we won't be wrong 
Uh, but those mistakes are going to be what we call non-systematic. They're, they're, we're not going to repeat mistakes over and over again and not learn from them. So when we, as an entire market, you know, we have that wisdom of crowds, as it were, think interest rates are going to be higher for longer. Again, we don't have a crystal ball, but if we are wrong, it's not obvious how we're wrong. Because again, if it's obvious, then we would price that in. So it's, it's a good bet. To, to reason as you just did, that the rate is high, the 30-year rate is high, because it's the average of all the interest rates that will prevail from now until year 30, and those rates must be higher than the rates are now. So that, again, they could be wrong. That is all, you know, 2 billion of them could be wrong, but it's not likely they're going to be wrong in a predictable way, in a way that you could say, I'll refinance in year five. If everybody right. knows that to be true, that long-term rate will reflect that. Yeah. Interesting. All right. Yeah. So yeah, it's a really good question. The appropriate rate, <laughs> it, yeah. You know, some we think it should go down uh, in, in the future, but you're saying not so fast on that either. That maybe at the time when like Lori bought her house, um, things were a little unreasonably low. Tell me a little bit about where we consider the just right, the Goldilocks economy. Yeah. So when when you know our listeners here well, the rate is high now because we think rates are going to be high. <laughs> They're thinking, well, that just pushes the question into the future, but why do we think rates are going to be high? And so here's another little decomposition we've talked about on this show. We think about any interest rate, including the ones we're thinking about in the future, um, as a real rate, the rate I want as a return on purchasing power, how much more I want to be able to buy with the money I gave you, um, and inflation. I want to hedge against inflation because that's going to erode the money you give me back. So those are the two numbers, the real rate and the inflation rate. And so what we're really saying is we must think that over the next 30 years, either the real rate or the inflation rate or some combination of both are going to go up. Well, I don't think it's the inflation rate that investors are hung up on. We've talked a lot about inflation and it was really high, but the reality is that monetary policy has been tight. I think the Fed's been pretty credible in its fight against inflation that's probably coming down. And I don't think investors are thinking that's why rates will be high. It's that real rate you mentioned that I think investors are reasoning rightly that once we get back to something like a normal economy, which incidentally, I don't think we've had since the great recession, the financial right, crisis, things right. have been really abnormal for long. Once we get back, a real return on money that prevails in the long run is probably a lot higher than anything we've seen. And so if you plug that into this goofy little decomposition we've been sort of, you know, narrating, um, you get higher numbers. So, you know, one quick way to get seven is, I don't know, you say, well, if the real rate is two or three, inflation's two or three, and then you get that default and term premium stuff we talked about that we don't think changes very much over time, but it's there. You add another two or so, you're at seven. And so, Seven doesn't strike me as abnormally high. I don't think it strikes many investors either as abnormally high, which is sort of, as you said, self-fulfilling, precisely why that's the rate right now. So let's bring this back to the federal government um, and the cost of you know, financing that government. Does that mean taxes are going to yeah. go up? Does that mean that we're going to like help, help look in your crystal ball a little bit and tie it to this whole idea of the, you know, defaulting on the debt and some of the high-profile political theater we've seen over the summer. Yeah, so none of that's helping. Um, <laughs> and and the, the reason is, as you said, the, the debt is, is rather high. So there's about as much debt 
as there is GDP. They're two different things. We're just scaling it. But debt is roughly 100% of GDP right now. Um, so there's a lot of treasury bills, notes, and bonds circulating out there so the government can pay its bills. Um, and as, as you said, there's concern over the sort of fiscal, forget yield to maturity, the fiscal maturity of the federal government. Yeah. And that's problematic. And it's a sort of a vicious cycle because the interest rates rise on concerns that interest rates are going to be higher in the future, maybe in part because things like liquidity and default risk and stuff will be things we have to worry about because of that political theater you talked about. And then the government has to finance its debt. So interest payments on the debt go up. That's just mechanical because the interest rate's higher. So now if you were worried about the fiscal sort of stability of the federal government, now you're even more worried because interest rates are higher, which means the service on the debt's higher. And there's a there's a picture there in the blog. You can see this. It's very striking in the last several months, not years, months, Mm -hmm. um, interest payments on the debt have gone up. And again, that that's mechanical. That's arithmetic. As interest rates rise, the government needs to finance its debt at higher rates. So again, you're worried about the fiscal condition of the federal government. Yields tend to creep up when we get worried. And then that raises debt service. So then we get more worried and then rates creep up some more. So I don't want to blame the federal government for a return to normalcy in terms of interest rates, right? That's sort of contradictory. But I do think that the federal government's fiscal position is certainly not helping matters in terms of the position of long-term interest rates going forward. Yeah. I want to make sure people know the blog we're talking about, um, you know, it might seem like I'm smart, but really I just read Joe Santos's blog <laughs> to prepare for this conversation. You too can be smart by going to schooled.blog.com. And we always put a link up on our website as well. So you can really dive into the, the real numbers here. Um, Joe, what happens next in this conversation? Um, I think higher interest rates are here to stay. So this is really dangerous, right? Because this is recorded. But um, (laughs) as I said, if you look at, if you go back to that blog and you look, don't go back 20 years, go back 50 and 60, you'll notice the aberration that is the interest rate environment after the financial crisis. Like it's weird. And everything before it is mortgage of six and seven and eight percent. And now we're sort of back over there. The financial crisis and its aftermath is what is really the aberration. And, you know, it'd be one thing if you just said, well, that looks different than the past, but maybe that's the new normal. But we know what caused those low interest rates. It was also extraordinary monetary policy. You know, interest rates were kept near zero um, intentionally by the monetary authority. So, you know, it's not just like you have a bunch of years with high rates and a bunch of years with low rates and Joe's just clinging on to the high rates. We know the low rates were uh, attended by exceptionally sort of bizarre, loose monetary policy, which the Federal Reserve is now trying to walk back. So (laughs) it seems to me that the rates would go back to what they were before things got weird. And we all take a walk together. Joe Santos, thank you so much. We'll put again those links up on our website, sdpb.org slash news. Always great to talk to you. We'll see you next time. Thank you, Lori. Let's take a moment now for South Dakota history. During this week in 1883, the first South Dakota Constitutional Convention was held. Its purpose was to split up the Dakota Territory and establish a state from the southern half. 
a group supporting statehood for South Dakota, met in Sioux Falls and drafted a state constitution. However, they had no federal authorization to do so. Now, the earliest record of Europeans setting foot in this landscape inhabited by indigenous people dates to 1743. That's when the Verendre brothers buried a lead plate near present-day Fort Pier with an inscription claiming the land for France. The United States claimed ownership of the Northern Plains in 1803 as part of the Louisiana Purchase. In 1861, the Organic Act created Dakota Territory. The unauthorized Constitutional Convention was the first time the people of Dakota Territory petitioned Congress for admission to the Union. A second convention was held two years later in 1885. That meeting was authorized and helped draft a more formalized state constitution. This early version of South Dakota's constitution included provisions that prohibited divorces, lotteries, and games of chance. Now, a third constitutional convention was held early in 1889, and that led to the final constitutional provisions that were adopted at statehood in November that year. Thus, the Dakota Territory was split into the states of North Dakota and South Dakota in 1889. But it was this week in 1883 when the first unofficial constitutional convention was held for the future state of South Dakota. Production assistance for This Week in South Dakota History comes from Brad Tennant. Dr. Tennant is a writer and professor of history at Dakota Wesleyan University. Coming up after the break, teacher talk. We gather our educators around the mic, and this time we'll talk about recruiting teachers and why how we talk about education and the profession matters. You're on listener-supported SDPB Radio. listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. School is now in session, and so is a new segment on In the Moment. I am thrilled to bring you Teacher Talk every Tuesday starting today. And I'd like to introduce you to the teaching professionals who are stepping away from the classroom, if only for a moment, to share their expertise with all of us. Gina Benz is an English teacher at Roosevelt High School in Sioux Falls, and Jackie Wilbur is director of the Center of Student and Professional Services that's at the University of South Dakota's School of Education. They joined me for a conversation on teacher recruitment ahead of the new school year, and I'll warn you, the following conversation might make you want to drop everything and become a teacher. Take a listen. Tell me a little bit, Jackie, how you guys, how you and Gina know each other and how you were, have worked together in the past. Yeah, I feel so lucky to know Gina for as long as I have. Um, we got to meet in 2007. Well, before that, actually, I was a student at Roosevelt High School when she was a teacher. Well. Um, and then shortly thereafter, in 2007, I was her long-term sub while she was on parental leave. Um, and I adore Gina, learned so much from her. I am very thrilled that we're getting to do this project together. Um, but the most recent capacity that we're getting to work together in is that um, through the Teacher Pathway Program, which is a collaboration between the University of South Dakota and the Sioux Falls School District. Well, what kind of teacher was she like? Um, fabulous. <laughs> no, I think um, the thousands of students, I mean, you have thousands of students thousands. at this point, yeah, yeah. Um, that you've had, I think would all say, 
she's an incredibly compassionate person, a very good listener. And the thing that I always admire about your classroom is how you really create a sense of community and people from all different walks of life feel safe and comfortable and like they have something to contribute and share. Mm. Thank you. That mm. makes me, that's exactly what I want it to be. So mm. it's good to get that feedback. Jackie, you failed to mention though that uh, you taught, you were my colleague yes. as well, and you taught speech and debate, <laughs> mm -hmm. and then we would have lunch together, and we uh, talked about the deepest of things, and also just just nurtured each other yeah. during that time. Our classrooms were right next door to each other for four years, and that was a very magical time. It oh. was magical. Yeah. All right, Miss Benz, why did you want to be a teacher in the first place? How did you get into this field? I didn't always want to be a teacher. I actually went to college to be a marriage and family therapist. Nice. And then I thought, well, I should have a practical backup plan. And, you know, I hate to say it, but teaching is a good backup plan for some people. There's a lot of teachers who planned to be nurses or doctors, and then they become high school science teachers, and, and they love it. You know, something wonderful about, about teaching is you have the same schedule as your children. So I have summer off with my kids. I have winter breaks with my kids. And so when that all clicked for me in college, I changed my mind and decided the goal was to be a, an English teacher, a high school English teacher. And I haven't looked back. I think I'll do it for another 20 years probably. There is a structure to teaching that has always appealed to me, which I think comes from being a student. You know, I love the back to school. I like the new school supplies. I like the breaks. Um, there was something about the changing of the seasons that, that created for me a stability that I don't want to say wasn't available at home, like I had an unstable home, but it was something that that's what your lives are structured around. For so many of us, our lives are structured around school. Even if you're homeschooled, a lot of your life is structured around whatever that education looks like. So I totally find it appealing to do that professionally. <laughs> you know, also, you know, with the start of the school year, I don't say welcome back to my students. I say happy new year yeah. because it's, it's our year. It's when our year really does start. Yeah. And it is just such a good routine, but it also has clear endings so you can start over and mm -hmm. do better the next time. Mm -hmm. All right. So for our, what we're going to do with these teacher talk conversations on Tuesdays is really Again, step into that teacher's lounge, pull back the curtain, and talk about everything from education theory to what it's like to have a bad day as a teacher and to go back and do it again, to things that might be happening in peer once we get to the legislative session, to just why you still love your job, even when uh, it might be overwhelming, like so many of us feel our jobs can be overwhelming. We're going to start with recruitment. Mm. And Jackie, explain what the teacher pathways program is for people who have not heard of it before? Sure. It's an incredibly successful program. I'm really proud of it. Um, it started in 2018 as a partnership with the University of South Dakota and the Sioux Falls School District. And it's really designed to inspire high school students to become interested in the field of education. And so they can take two courses, um, Teacher Pathway 1 or Teacher Pathway 2, and that counts for high school credit, and then it also counts for credit at the University of South Dakota, um, and is also transferable to most colleges in the state. Um, since the time it started, 575 students have gone through the program, and we just graduated our first cohort um, in May of 2023. So those students who were high school students in Gina's class or in other classes in Sioux Falls are now teachers in the Sioux Falls School District. So oh. it's like this very cool full circle moment, um, and we're excited for it to keep continuing. What do you want to add to that, Gina, about the program itself? 
It is one of the greatest joys of my whole career to nurture students to decide if teaching is for them. And certainly some students realize teaching isn't for them. Mm -hmm. Good. Then they don't waste time in college. They can move on to another career that is more for them. Some students take teacher pathway and they don't intend to be teachers, but they think, well, it could be a good, here it is, backup plan. And what USD told me early on was that they had students who were sophomores or juniors who had been business majors or whatnot come into the School of Education and say, you know what, this isn't doing it for me. I took teacher pathway. That was kind of fun. How do I get into the education program now? Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's not a surefire all these students become teachers, but it's a good way to explore. What is the problem with teaching, not not with recruitment, but there's a need here, and mm-hmm. it's an urgent need. We don't have enough teachers. Lay out some of the facts, Jackie, for us. Yeah, um, so it's, it's not just a problem in the state of South Dakota. It's a problem nationwide. Um, we started the school year with a pretty strong teacher shortage um, on the whole. Some research that just came out of Kansas State University had that number pretty high, like 36,000 vacancies across the, the nation this year. And so um, I think there's just a need to kind of reinvigorate the profession, and that's what we set out to do with the Teacher Pathway Program. My office works with recruitment. Um, It's one of the main jobs that we do. And I think that um, just speaking about teachers in a really uplifting and positive way and remembering all of the good teachers that we've had is is some of the energy that needs to come into the profession right now. Um, Because there has been challenges the past few years. To say that there hasn't would be inaccurate. (laughs) But I also think it's really important that we start to encourage folks and remember all of the reasons that education is important for society. Um, And the Department of Education is doing this too. They just came out with a brand new website um, and they are trying to infuse the state with people becoming more excited about the profession as well. Yeah. Yeah. Gina, when you have high school students and you say, you know, you'd be a good teacher, And they say, oh, no, I would never want, like, what are some of the misperceptions that high school students have Mm. about the education field based on the fact that they're in school when you tell them that, you know? Yes, (laughs) yes. Uh, They just want to get out of school at this point. I know, I know. Part of my job is to recruit students to try Teacher Pathway or or at least just make sure it's known that this is an option. And I uh, remember one year I went into the Black Student Union Club and I said, how many of you have ever had a teacher who looks like you? And they had not. And I said, would you like to have a teacher who maybe has some of your cultural experiences? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. So how many of you might want to be a teacher? Not a single hand was raised. Why not? Oh, I don't want to be in poverty. I don't want to be poor. Mm. That's the biggest misconception Uh. that comes with a lot of people that I talk to, not just this group. And so then I talk about how, you know, teaching leads to a very solid, secure, middle-class lifestyle. And we get paid in two ways in our jobs. We get paid with money, but we also get paid with happiness. And so you got to figure out what makes you happy, what makes you enough money, and what is enough money for you. And I tell them, your teachers, we have solid middle-class lifestyles. We have great retirement. There are benefits beyond the paycheck. Mm-hmm. Here's the other thing I think people forget about teaching is that it's not just the first-year teacher salary that you're looking at. There are administrators, and there are teacher coaches, and you make more money now than you did 
when you were a student teacher, right? And there's room for advancement in education that uh, perhaps they're not considering either. That is true. However, I have made a conscious decision that I want to stay in the classroom. Mm. I don't want to go into administration. I want to lead from the classroom because um, I'm in the trenches mm. with, with my teaching colleagues. And so sometimes I'm a speaker at things or I write things, and, and these people know that I'm not removed from the classroom. I'm in it with you. Now, our schools are attempting to... Uh, have the starting pay get larger mm -hmm. and more competitive. That is for sure. So in the Sioux Falls area, for instance, most teachers are starting at around 50,000 right now. You mentioned student teaching. Uh, in South Dakota, students do not get paid to student teach, so it's more like an unpaid internship. Uh, that's not the case everywhere, though, and so that's probably the next step in South Dakota to figure out how we can comp compete there. And Jack, okay. you probably have more to say about that. Yeah, I have so much more to say about that. So maybe we'll have to save it for another time. But <laughs> legislation did just change. And so, um, yeah, things are on the horizon in terms of, of getting student teaching or what we call teacher residency paid for. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. So what are some of the ways that you think um, the rest of the, the public can talk about teachers in a way, like in the way that we discuss um, what teachers do that helps young people see that this is a, a viable career for them. How do we talk about educators these days? Yeah, I think honestly that's the simplest way that we can start to encourage people into the profession. Um, I think teachers and and people in roles like mine need to start doing it themselves. You know, I do remember wanting to be a teacher at an earlier age and being discouraged by other teachers. And I think um, I've just been putting my ear to that a little bit more. And mm -hmm. I think that we could speak highly of ourselves and that would be a really good place to start um, because I really value the work that we do I'm proud of the work that we do and my favorite people are teachers and so I think just simply saying what um, what good people exist out there reminding folks about the the good teachers that they've had in their past speaking highly of the profession um, it's a simple switch but I know for me um, since I made the conscious effort to do that, I'm just seeing great teachers and great future teachers everywhere. And it doesn't have to be a, f you know, fake it till you make it. Oh situation. no, I'm not Pollyanna. Nope. Exactly. <laughs> it's it's let's find ways to make this profession enjoyable for you. Mm -hmm. I truly do love being a teacher. I am not faking it in any no. way. But I also took really intentional, concerted steps to find that joy and to find where my flow would be as a teacher that keeps me loving this profession. So, you know, I have had to set certain boundaries. I've I changed how I grade. It's you find the strategies so you can find that joy. Let's talk about that finding ways to make the profession enjoyable for mm -hmm. you. Jackie, what's that been like for you? You know, I do think it started with something as simple as a mindset. Um, I am naturally a, a pretty stressed person. It kind of comes by, I come by it honestly, as they say. And so I made a conscious effort to start addressing that in my own life. And um, once I started addressing my own stress, I realized all the ways that I could make my classroom when I was teaching high school much more relaxed. And, and that made my students more relaxed. And then suddenly it was a much more comfortable place to be. I do think there's a lot of influences from the outside that made me feel, at least at the time, that there was a lot of shoulds and supposed tos. And I think that the times have changed where teachers have more um, empowerment, more control than 
I think that we sometimes let ourselves have. And that for me just made all the difference to kind of give myself that permission. Things like like just bringing more plants into my classroom because I liked the way they looked or taking like quiet time at the beginning so that everyone could kind of settle down and um, slowing the pace of some things. Nothing major, um, but all of those things just made my my personal being more relaxed and I think that made me a better teacher and my classroom more comfortable. Yeah. Tell me a little bit, Gina, about things that you've done to just make this this profession an enjoyable career, not just something that you're going to burn out on in five years. I think the first thing is to make connections. I Mm -hmm. make connections with my students. I try to learn a little bit about every single one of them. And those relationships are genuine and important in my life. So that's number one. Secondly, my motto is that learning should be fun. And notice I'm not saying school should be fun or class should be fun, although that's great if they are. Learning, that means we're actually doing something. People are growing. People are developing. And so learning should be fun. And so how do I make learning fun? I think about what would be meaningful to the students, relevant to their lives. I, In an English class, um, in life beyond the classroom walls, I don't do worksheets when I read a book. We talk about the book and make connections and ask questions, maybe do a little bit of research. But I don't make a diorama. <laughs> so those things can be fun don't, and sometimes necessary. Don't yeah, get me wrong. Sure. But mostly I try to make the classroom feel like what the world is outside of the classroom walls. And I never say like real life because tell, I tell you what, in the classroom, that is real life. That is real life for those kiddos. Mm-hmm. But beyond the classroom walls. So hopefully the English classroom is a little bit more like a book club. You know, and then when they're writing, hopefully it's very meaningful to them where they can learn more about themselves, others, and society. Mm. What are some ways that uh, you collaborate with other teachers down the hall? Uh, you know, you mentioned being next door to each other in the classroom, the kind of support that you find from other educators. What's that like? It's really powerful. Uh, you find your people. I don't know who said it. I don't even know if it's real, but it means something to me. You are the average of the five people you spend the most time with. Mm. And, you know, you find your teacher people who who share your teaching philosophies and some who don't because it's good to be challenged. It's good to look at other perspectives. But you're just, you be intentional with who your teacher besties are. And, uh, and they support me both professionally with thinking about grading a little differently or something like that, but they also support professionally. Actually, one of my friends, she once said in all of her observations, and she's in her 50s, she said, teachers seem to have the closest, most beautiful relationships with each other than people do in other workplaces. I don't know if that's true. Mm-hmm. I've only been a teacher since college, but I do feel that. You never stop learning yourself, right? Oh, absolutely. And it made me also think about um, when you were talking about learning being fun, how fun it is to watch students learn. Mm -hmm. And then Mm -hmm. to go share those successes with the teacher down the hall just is like the best part about teaching. You know what I mean? Like, oh, you're never going to believe what this kid said or how this went. Um, All the funny things that happen. It's just like real community. yeah, to just be able to be that close to people. They really are your neighbor in this very literal sense. Um, Gina and I even shared a, a portable wall, so sometimes we could hear each other teaching, or, <laughs> or maybe my students were a little loud, <laughs> so she could hear them as well, too. Uh, but yeah, there's like a lot of learning happens, and the, the community building is, is so powerful. Yeah, you know, and it's a community because a school 
especially nowadays, is meant to be collaborative. Mm -hmm. We are supposed to collaborate with each other and be curious, not compete with each other. And I know in so many other businesses that competition can, it drives people, but it can also beat people down. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All right, so how we talk about teachers matter, how we talk about teachers in our homes matter for our students, inviting people into the profession, encouraging them into the profession, Mm -hmm. and then connecting them with some of these resources like Teacher Pathways um, can do a lot toward helping chip away at the teacher shortage. Share this series on our website, sdpb.org slash teacher talk, and tune in next Tuesday for another teacher talk. That is our show for today. We hope that it served you on the next In the Moment. Former President Donald Trump's indictments have not significantly eroded candidate Trump's popularity with Republican voters, at least not yet. Our Dakota political junkies explore popularity and politics. Plus, Triopia Green Washington returns to the program. She'll share memories of growing up during the cruelty of segregation laws in the South and still learning to believe fiercely in herself. From all of us at South Dakota Public Broadcasting, I'm Lori Walsh. Thank you for listening.